welcome to the PhD in Parenting podcast, the podcast where we talk about being a parent in academia and an academic at home. We're your hosts. This is Judith. And this is Erin. So we usually start off the episodes now trying to check back in and do a little housekeeping. Is there anything on your mind this week, Judith? Yeah, I was listening back to last week's episode, and I felt like I owed you a little bit of a correction. Uh, When I was talking at the end of the episode about, you know, how this podcast has been a little bit of an experience of growth for me, and I was talking about mastering technology, I kind of made it sound like I had anything to do with the technology, which really is not true at all. And I want our listeners to know, for those of you out there that know me in person are probably wondering where all of my stutters are and all of my ums and ahs. And I want to give a big shout out to Erin for kind of cleaning up the way I talk and spending time on figuring out the technology there. What I was trying to say in the growth mindset episode was that this is very much out of my comfort zone. And it's been a really enjoyable experience to sort of work through that. So that was the point that I was trying to make, not trying to claim, you know, I enjoy doing this. And it's been a learning curve for me as well. And whereas I have picked up the reins with thinking about editing technology using the old garage band versus audacity. If anyone's out there (laughs) listening and wants to know, it's a learning curve for me as well. And there's still things that I'm kind of finding mysterious. And so I do believe that really ties back to that growth mindset. I actually myself wanted to do a bit of housekeeping if that's okay. I was listening in and I realized that I misspoke uh, last week. I mentioned a study by Jaeger et al. And I said it was from the UK. It's actually from the United States. I just wanted to bring that up (laughs) in the name of good scholarship. But that kind of brings us to all the work we do in the academy and all the things we do as working parents. So, Yudit, why don't you take us into the focus of this episode? Sure. So a little while ago, one of our listeners posed an interesting question on Instagram where um, she shared a photo and shared a little bit of a conversation that she had with her son that morning. And she sort of asked us, how do we explain to our kids what we do? Because what happened in the conversation was that she was trying to explain what kind of a doctor she was. And the takeaway that her son had was that she was a pretend one, which I hadn't heard before. I thought that was really fun. Uh, <laughs> I So I, you know, my, um, my kids attended my hooding ceremony, which was at the Fox Theater in Detroit, which was just fabulous. It was on the stage there. So anybody who's not familiar with the Fox Theater, you should look up um, the beauty that is that building and imagine yourself, you know, on that stage. It was amazing. And so the kids were really impressed with the ceremony and being in the theater. And they called me Dr. Mom for about one day. And then that sort of <laughs> subsided. So I think we've all, you know, we've all heard the Dr. Mom references and the the not that kind of doctor joke or whatever. But I think that the pretend one, that was new to me. I don't know if you'd heard that before. So we thought, it would be interesting to explore that a little bit further to start sort of from the question of how do we explain to our kids what we do, but then also kind of think a little bit more generally about how the work that we do, both being an academic generally, but also the specific research that you and I are interested in, how that impacts our parenting. So right now I can say that my daughter knows that I'm an editor and that I publish books. And she has been really into writing stories and writing books. And so she is, you know, at her computer using the Google Docs, writing this whole long narrative about the soccer, she calls it the soccer girls. It's really cool. It's really neat. And she's like, Mom, can you publish this? And so we've, I've, you know, I've been trying to explain to her, you know, what kind of publishing I do that academic publishing is very different from regular book publishing or, or publishing fiction. And she's interested and she listens. But then at the same time, you know, of course, she hears I can't publish her book. And then, you know, you can kind of see that mentally also she moves on. So, Erin, are those like kind of conversations something that you have with your kids? Do you explain to your kids what you do? And right now, you know, since you're doing so much of it from home, do they ever sort of like look over your shoulder to check out what you're doing? How much of a sense do you think that your kids have of what you do at work? So my older ones now are 16, 13, 11, and then my youngest is seven, and they really have observed me throughout the entire process of PhD. And so they have watched me have my laptop up at my cabin, writing chapters, 
they've watched me kind of make notes and reading. And so there was even something that I had a great memory of when we were graduate students at Wayne State. They had a really awesome bring your child to work day, which was fabulous. It was so cool. I have to say kudos to Wayne State because they did an awesome job on this. It wasn't like the kid just sat with you. Um, They had a whole variety of things for the kids to do involving all the different colleges and departments within the university. And I don't know if you ever got to do that. Your children might have been a little bit younger at the time, but it was like you could go to the anthropology department and they had these like little uh, things that they had broken apart and your children could like piece them back together. And this is what, you know, an anthropologist would do, which was really neat. They had things going on in the um, natural sciences department. They had something at the planetarium. They had all these different events. So it was really cool for my kids to see the whole nature of the entire R1 university. And again, Wayne State is just such a huge campus. So they were not only sort of able to grasp my role there, but they were able to see like all the different moving parts of the university, which I thought was super cool. I know that they also came with me when I was working that day. It was when I was a tutor at the writing center. And so they kind of got to observe my work there. And they thought that was pretty neat. They got to see me working with students, talking with students. And that was really pretty cool. Now that we're all at home, they have, in fact, observed me teaching classes. And I never, like, talk outright about a student's writing assignment with my kids. But I kind of, in general, explain some of the things that are going on. And it can be kind of funny because my one daughter is like, well... I know that, mom, you know, we're studying MLA essays right now in seventh grade, and that's obvious. And I'm like, okay, fine. Uh, let me see what you're working on. So <laughs> it's, um, they, I think they have a good sense of what I am doing. You know, I think they had a good sense of even the dissertation process. And like you said, I had two of my children attend the services at the Fox Theater. So that was really, really neat. They were old enough to understand what was happening And I have had that same feedback, though, like, well, doctor, you're not a real doctor as a real doctor must be a medical doctor, you know, and I I sort of get that we had that conversation about it. They have asked me about the different titles and what PhD actually stands for. So I thought that was kind of neat. Even that's my youngest daughter. She's seven. She's asked me, well, like, what is a PhD? However, and this kind of leads us into this next question, there have been times where I felt like my children have become resentful of my work at home. And I, I'm going to put this out here, and I mean no disparaging comments to anyone involved in the dissertation process, but my dissertation in this house was referred to as my, quote, stupid dissertation, my dumb dissertation. When are you going to be finished with that stupid dissertation of yours, mom? It felt like something that was possibly taking away time from them, which it was. There are times where I'd say, look, folks, you know what? I need to lock myself up in my bedroom for a couple hours. I need to make progress on this. And I even had a babysitter come sometimes to just hang out with them downstairs while I was upstairs. I wasn't actually gone, but I just needed the space. And so I felt like there were times where it seemed that my work was something that made them resentful. This was especially true in my time as a graduate student, because there were stretches where I would be gone from home for 10 or 12 hours. There was that time when you were probably there as well doing the same kind of things. I know you were, where we had to maybe work at the writing center as part of our role, you know, our first semester. There were some hours doing that. There were some hours dedicated to teaching, obviously. And then there was some time going into our own class, which I think went from like 6 to 9, if I recall, or 6.30 to 9, something like that. So there was no sense to return home, right? You're not going to drive back home. And so there was just these days, you know, maybe Tuesdays and Thursdays where I was gone from 9 a.m. to 9.30 at night. And I felt like this could become a source of friction for my kids. Where were you, mommy? Mommy, you know, um, I'm kind of mad at you because it seems like you're gone all day. But did that ever affect you? Do you feel like your children were ever a little resentful about the work you do now or in the past? Yeah, a little bit. Um, I think, you know, listening to you talk, I'm kind of thinking back and it's definitely true that the long days didn't affect us as much because I had my children after I was done with coursework. So these like long evenings and the long days didn't really impact my kids. And then also for my older one, she spent a lot. I sort of had, I tried to separate the two a little bit more um, for my own sanity kind of thing. Um, I just, I, and I think 
I don't know, you know this, but the, it's it's very difficult for me to work on something with the kids around. And I've gotten a little bit better at it over time. But it's it's especially when when the kids were little, it was just not something that I was really good about. And so I had a setup where, you know, she would spend days with my mother-in-law. She went to my mother-in-law's house, like, I think four days a week. And those were my working days. And then that was, I called that good. And so I wasn't usually trying very hard to work on things while they were with me. Now that we're moving forward, moving into the situation that we're in now, of course, it's a very different situation where I do have to work while the kids are around and it's hard for them to get used to. And there, you know, there's definitely been situations where, you know, the kids want to do something and it's like, oh, you're always working. And it's a little bit of a mix of, you know, the the actual work work and then housework, right? Because a lot of times it's like, okay, I have them somewhere while I'm doing, sitting at my computer and actually doing work. But then when they're home, there's a lot of other work that needs to happen. There's a lot of cleaning, there's a lot of laundry. And so I've definitely heard from them, you know, you never play with us, you never have time to play with us, um, and things like that. And so uh, so I definitely get that resentment. I've also sort of um, passed up opportunities or a lot of times when some when they're doing something like on the weekends, like they have a soccer game or other activities, um, I would pass on those and I would my husband would take the kids. And I will be honest that partially it's a welcome excuse for me to be able to say, you know, I can't go to the soccer game because I need to finish this draft or I need to do X, Y, and Z. Um, so I've, you know, I, I might be a little bit guilty of using that as a front to, to get out of things that my kids want me to do. I don't know if that um, resonates with you at all, but, um, you know, it, it makes sense because the work that we do is something that we're passionate about. Right. And so if I don't get something done, I might even be tempted to put in a couple extra hours, even though the the point of the job that I have right now is that it is mostly nine to five. But there are frequent interruptions, especially with how things are going right now. Kids are home. So sometimes I'll, you know, I'll say I do need to get this other thing done and I'll pass on, you know, go into the pumpkin patch, especially while I was a grad student. I did that a lot. Like, you, you know, my husband would take everybody. And maybe they would go with my in-laws or whatever. They would spend a day at the pumpkin patch and I would have that date to work on things. So I think, you know, that's, I think that's fair um, just in terms of how excited we are about the work that sometimes that comes out of, out of their time. And I think it's important for them to see that too. Have you ever had an experience or does that happen a lot where you miss out on things with your kids, like field trips and things like that? where you have to pass up those opportunities and how do they usually respond to that? Yeah, there's been situations by choice and by chance. Um, <laughs> like you, I sort of leave some of those weekend excursions to their dad because you know what? He works probably more than I do. And when there's an opportunity for him to hang out with them and spend some time, I do the same kind of thing. Like, you know what? I have 10 essays left to grade. Why don't you guys just go and have fun? And I think that's okay. You know, sometimes I feel a little bit like, oh, I should have gone out. And sometimes I do go out, but they all went and picked some strawberries and raspberries a couple of weekends ago. I was like, that sounds fun. When you come back, I'll help you clean them and go through them. But I let them do that. That being said, when I did get my first full-time job three or four years ago, I'm coming up on four years there were a lot of times where I felt like I could not leave and attend a field trip. And I remember specifically the one that I missed, my little daughter, maybe she was only five. She came home crying. She's like, mom, all the other mommies were there on the field trip and you weren't there. Why not? And that did make me feel pretty terrible. But in my defense, the campus I worked on at first did not really have, they were very, very strict about missing class. I mean, I think that's hard to justify to miss uh, to miss teaching a class to go to a field trip. Uh, my daughter asks about that a lot, too. She's like, can you chaperone this one? Can you chaperone this one? And I usually just tell her no, because I, you know, I'm happy to take you to the pumpkin patch, but I really don't want to be in charge of your friends. Like, I, that's not something that I'm interested in doing at all. And I know it's important to her, but there are other there are other ways, you know, there are other things that I can do 
that I can give. And that's something that, that I just am really reluctant to do. Um, and you know, she, this is also the kid that, you know, when she was really little and she spent time at her grandmother's house would start crying regularly when I came, when I walked in the door to, (laughs) to pick her up. So she has been very independent and very happy to do things without me from a very young age. And so I, tend not to worry about that too much because I know that she has just as much fun. She looks to other kids that have, you know, parents around or she's asked me frequently, mom, you're a teacher. Couldn't you teach at my school? Because she has friends that, you know, where the teacher is at school. And then I say, you know what? I don't think it would be all that exciting for you if I was around all day, every day. It might seem like a cool thing, but I don't think you would actually enjoy that if I was always there. And, you know, I think it's really important for them at this age to develop, to develop that independence and have their own space. And their school is their own space. There's so much, you know, the opportunities are so limited right now. You know, that's your, that's your space. You go do that. And then when you come home, you know, we'll do something else. And I think I like what you said about the strawberries because, when they went strawberry picking, you know, you were probably able to finish grading your 10 essays. And then when they came back, you could show them how to make jelly or whatever. I think I remember you talking about that. So that's, that's the other thing is that it really allows you to focus, you know, to have that dedicated focus time. And then when they do come back, you know, I do sit on the floor with them and play or read them books or whatever. It's not like I don't do any of that. And so just to, for me, it's helpful to separate the things, but I know that that's not everyone's approach. I I know that a lot of people um, are better about sort of having a more morphed um, approach to the different aspects. But I think what you're saying is really important too, that you can then give full focus and full attention to the child. You don't have that doubt in the back of your mind, like, oh, come on, you have to go reply to the author now, or Aaron, you really should have checked in on those discussion board posts. You know, you could be doing that now. So I like that idea of having the space to get everything done and then give the child the full attention. I think that's really important to not be kind of sitting on the floor and grading papers at the same time. Now that's not exactly. always that's not always how my life plays out, but I try to make sure that I have the time to do that stuff so then I can spend the time with them when they're back. And that's really important to me as well. Something that you were sort of talking about too with the field trips is I always those things stress me out anyway. You were talking about <laughs> I always get like so nervous because they'll say, okay now Mrs. Bell, you're in charge of your daughter and then these three other students. And I just find that very stressful for some reason. It's like, I'm okay if something, you know, were to go awry with my own child, but taking some care of someone else's child is such a solemn obligation. I feel very stressed out about it. Um, (laughs) And I I do try to do the things when I can. There have been times, you know, when I was on that more strict work schedule the first year or two that I worked at that campus, there was a way for me to kind of take a half day off on Friday most of the time. And so when there was something on Friday, I would try to do it. I would try to do, and that's what I tried to explain to my, especially the youngest, look, I try my best. I try to do what I can do. Most of the time I do make things. I get to go to your concerts and things like that. I haven't missed anything big like that, but you know, sometimes I can't do it. So I do the best I can. And I also have four kids. So that means like quadruple the field trips. And, you know, the older ones don't do as much now, but it's another balancing act of juggling the schedule and all that. Absolutely. And but you've gone you've done Girl Scouts, too, haven't you? Yeah, we did that for a, a good while. I was actually kind of sad that that was something that was really meaningful to me as a child. It's one of those things where I was like really excited for my girls to get involved in. My older daughter's troop just kind of came to a close, if you will. The parents that had been volunteering as the leaders, I think they did it for three or four years. They did an awesome job, but maybe they were just kind of over it because it is parent led. Yeah. And they said there were some other groups available in a couple cities that were maybe five, 10 miles away. And my daughter's interest just wasn't there. I really Mm -hmm. loved it. I have such fond memories of scouting. I really enjoyed it. And then the other daughter, um, my middle daughter, if you will, she was in a troop as well. We changed schools and I said, you can still go and hang out with those girls. And she was kind of like, yeah, not really for me. So it was something that I really enjoyed and I was hoping they would enjoy as well, but it just didn't really click with them the way it did with me, I guess. Right, uh, again, right. talking about that, what motivates you? I loved earning those badges. My daughter was in Girl Scouts last fall 
and she was excited about earning the badges too but it was you know i was pregnant and i we had just moved here and i have the you know we have the four-year-old and it was just like it was just too much like you know sell these cookies to be i don't know anybody in the area like you know it was just it was too much then the pandemic happened and it sort of fell by the wayside and she has so many other interests too that I try to sort of say all right you know you need to you need to make some choices but so when you're talking about field trips and Girl Scouts trips and troops and whatnot because the field trips stress me out too just because of the interactions with the other parents so it's so partially it's like okay you know if I have a group of three kids and there's a fight it is going to be virtually impossible for me to not take my daughter's side and so that puts me in like a strange position that's something that I worry about but then also you know it's always so strange for me to interact with other parents that I've never met before is that something that's uh that's stressful for you or easy peasy for you even though I'm an extrovert, I struggle with identity and self-esteem. And so I always do feel like there is a bit of awkwardness trying to be put in this very arbitrary group of people. It's not like you're going to be placed in the group with the other mom who happens to study feminism and who is well-read and who has a PhD. And I think a little of it is me just kind of being the person that I am. But I have found it hard to connect sometimes to the other parents. And I have found sometimes when I do say what I do, I don't know, you know, sometimes there's a kind of a different reaction to that. Not only am I a working mother, but I'm a working mother with a PhD, you know, and I don't, I think I'm pretty down to earth and pretty relatable. And I don't usually even broadcast that fact. It was funny because I had replied to an email from someone from my work email and they're like, oh my God, Erin, you're a doctor, you're a PhD. I had no idea you were. And I was like, yeah, you know, I try not to like announce that as like my lead in like, hello, Dr. Erin Bell, you know, because I, <laughs> I feel like that could kind of alienate the other parents. And that's not really why I did this. I didn't, it's, it's more for my own intellectual journey, but I wonder if sometimes if that puts me a little bit of a disadvantage because then there are the mothers who, if they are stay at home moms, I just feel like there's a little more time to be the mom. That's like, they have classroom moms or classroom parent. They're the ones that take uh, control of the party. They're the ones that sometimes volunteer in the lunchroom. And I think if you are working, it's easy to feel a little more disconnected from that community. So then I'm at the field trip or whatever, and I feel a little more isolated from the other moms that happen to be there for everything. And maybe they already know each other because they are able to attend all of the field trips or, you know, go to the classroom parties or whatever. And so uh, so I definitely hear you on that. And I remember you know, when I was living closer to where you're living now, having that same experience. And for me, it always, it's always like the playground situation where you're, you know, meeting random people um, and you're trying to talk to them and the connection is the kids and you start talking about the kids. But then when you start moving into try and shift the conversation to the adult. So, and, you know, working on the dissertation and like being an academic while I was working on my dissertation was just such a huge part of my experience and of who, how I think of myself. You know, I always found ways to sort of naturally let it come into the, into the conversation. And I felt a huge shift when we moved to Maryland, when we were living outside of, just outside of DC, these conversations at the playground, you know, I had the same conversations at the playground but they were so much less awkward. And there, you know, there's the general um, education level there, I think on average is a bit higher. So the likelihood that I was going to run into somebody who also had done some sort of graduate work was, was a lot higher. And there were, you know, it was, it happened a lot more frequently that the other mothers that I was meeting at the park were also working parents of some kind. And so I didn't feel like the sentence you know, I'm working on my dissertation was a conversation stopper the same way that it was in other areas that I've lived. And so that made it a lot easier for me um, to sort of connect with people there. So I do think that that's a really important point to just sort of have something beyond the kids that allows you to connect with the other with the other parents. And so when I was thinking about this ahead of time, I found this study about playgroup participation, which I thought was really interesting. And the the results of the study suggested that um, participating in playgroups in the early years, and they looked at sort of four different age groups and they or four they called it waves. And they basically um, found that the if 
a parent participates in a play group during the first two waves of their child's early lives, they are much more likely at a later stage to feel supported, to feel that they have a support system. They're very um, nuanced in interpreting these results. It wasn't just simply the conclusion that it was those exact same contacts that then later provided support. They were kind of looking at all of the different advantages that it has to be part of a playgroup, including providing more confidence to the parents, making the parent a more confident parent that then later could reach out to other people. Um, and there were some other factors that they included in their considerations. There were two interesting points in here that I want to briefly mention. One was that friendship and the support that may stem from such friendships is not usually immediately established, right? It's not, it doesn't just take one or two meets at a playground. It takes more time. It takes time to develop mutual trust, respect, and affinity uh, in order to establish these friendships. So if it is the same friends that you have from those early playgroups, then it takes that amount of time and dedication to, to establish those friendships so that you have a support system that you can rely on later. And then the other thing that they say in the conclusion, they're pointing toward future research opportunities. And they're saying that, you know, it would be interesting to examine whether parenting style and other factors such as personality contribute to the observed relationship between playgroup participation and social support outcomes. So what they're insinuating there is that those friendships probably are more reliable if there are some sort of other communal aspects, right? So what they found in the study too is that when there's disagreement over parenting styles and there's judgment and things like that, then those, those, um, friendships are more likely to fall apart or to not last very long. And so I think this question of, you know, how do we as academic moms make friends is really important. Uh, you know, I had a play group. This was interesting to me because I took my oldest daughter to a German language play group. And so basically what I had in common with the other women in that play group, it was all women. The other women in that play group was that we were that we were all uh, native language, like native German speakers, and that we had small children. And they were all very pleasant and very nice. And I, you know, I liked all of them, but I formed no friendships because I had no similarities, no other similarities beyond sort of the German speaking and the, you know, being a parent of small children. And so I think, you know, for me, it came down to at some point I have asked all my questions about feeding and vaccinations and other things. And so then, you know, I want to kind of move on from that. And so when we were at Wayne, there were so many um, grad students that had kids that we were able to form a playgroup there. And those friendships and those contacts actually have lasted me a lot longer because it was at that intersection of being a parent and being a graduate student that I felt that my grad student friends without kids couldn't really get the mother part of me and my family members that weren't, you know, academic didn't really understand the pressures of being an academic. And so that playgroup at that nexus was really important for me and continues to be a network that I can rely on. Erin, did you have any experience with playgroups? Are you still in contact with any of those mothers? And do you feel that, you know, how do you feel that that worked out for you? So I joined a parenting group that was based around the hospital that I gave birth uh, to my first child, my son. And so what they did was they have a ton of these groups running all the time. It's Beaumont Hospital. It's a Beaumont parenting program. And the only sort of condition of it is that everyone in the group, uh, it was their very first child we all had January birthdays. So it was kind of based on, you know, the developmental stages. And we began meeting when our babies were three months old. And we were all first time parents. So that was kind right. of cool because we're all kind of experiencing the things like, oh my gosh, you know, teething, crawling. There was that part of it. But again, this kind of plays, I think, more into my personality type. One thing that I think was a little risky for me is that I started to feel like maybe I was making too many comparisons between my son mm -hmm. and what the other kids were yeah. doing. Because if so-and-so is standing, why why isn't my son standing yet? Or yes. if they're being really social and my son is standing off, is there something up with that? So there was that component of it. But there was some very practical information, which was, you know, we were all new parents. Maybe we were talking about nursing, breast pumps, all the rest of it. So that was, that was kind of good. 
But then the second part that you already mentioned, which really resonates with me as well, was that was our only commonality, right? Was the the child that was three months. And I just had so much baggage from being an adolescent and being a quote unquote nerd and maybe not feeling cool or popular that I think that might have shaped my ability to make lasting friendships there. A lot of the people in the group were older than we were, so they were more well-established. We had our very first house, which was this tiny little 600 square feet. No, actually, when we started, we weren't even in our own house. We were in a rental house that was kind of run down, a little bit shabby <laughs> because that's, right. you know, those 26. And some of the other parents, because, you know, how trends are today, some of your other parents were a full 10 years older than us. Right. And it was their first child. So there was some really big discrepancies. I know for sure a couple of the folks there were practicing lawyers. They lived in much more affluent neighborhoods. And again, this is all my baggage. We met at people's houses and I just remember feeling so stressed out about when they came to my rental house because it was teeny tiny it was kind of run down. It was like one of these old houses where the ceiling was kind of crooked from settling. And, you know, we had these like wild neighbors that lived above us. It was a flat. And I just remember being like sort of mortified, like, oh, what are they going to think of me? And probably they thought nothing. You know, this is on me. I don't think anyone was there to judge me and my husband and my little baby about, you know, oh my gosh, they're living in this rental place. I felt like that kind of encumbered me as we grew. We continue to meet with them. And I think some of the folks there did form those lasting friendships. But like you said, maybe they had more in common than just the child. I think we stayed in the group until my son was about six, if you can believe it. We met, met once oh, wow. a month. That's a long time. It is. And we did have um, other excursions. A lot of us, I know a few of the people were teachers in the K through 12. So when it was like summertime, we'd meet at little parks and do that kind of meetup. And that was fun. I thought, though, as they got older and older, you know, it seemed like my son didn't really get that much out of being in the group. He's Mm -hmm. not a super social person. And so it seemed to me that if I'm doing this for him mostly and he doesn't really like it, why why am I? And I'm already stressed out about it. (laughs) So we kind of just made our adieu. I was kind of like, yeah, I think we're good. And all the people were great. They were very nice, awesome, kind people. It just seemed to me like my son wasn't really enjoying it. And we tried for six years. He didn't really make any good friendships. It seemed like some of the other kids, we had a lot of boys in the group. I think it was eight boys and two girls, if I'm not mistaken. And then some of the other boys really bonded and that was like their buddy, but my son just didn't feel super connected to anyone there. So I'm like, why am I still doing this? Because I'm awkward every single time, you know, I don't know. <laughs> so Yeah. It's, and I remember that from my, uh, from my play group too, that there were some other friendships that were obviously already there. And we had a Friday date where the play group met, but then there were other, I think it was like eight or 10 moms with their kids. And so there were clearly like smaller groups of friends that would meet outside of this. And so they would like do something on the weekends or, and they were all stay at home moms too. So they would do something on a Tuesday, they would go to the zoo or whatever. And so there was this whole thing of like, I never get invited to anything, you know? And so like, I hear you on like the, you know, the nerd baggage and the just sort (laughs) of like the trauma of like, you know, I'm not part of this and this is so hard. And then, you know, the same thing, feeling awkward about it and then carrying that around because obviously if that, if that's not obvious to anyone, I'm an overthinker. And so taking that home and then thinking it over and was that weird that I said that and, you know, what should I have said there? And so it just like cost me a lot of actual like additional emotional energy to process these, right. these playgroup meetings that I think ultimately it just also didn't, wasn't, there wasn't enough payoff for me to keep doing it. And I think I went until we moved to Rockville. I just kind of kept going and kept thinking, you know, like maybe next week we'll be better. But I think ultimately it was probably a good thing for me that we moved. And I looked very briefly to find another German playgroup in Maryland, but I don't think I found anything. There's a lot of German families in the Detroit area, actually, because of the auto industry. And I didn't find the same cluster in Maryland. And so I never I never tried to find another one of those groups. And it's probably for me, ultimately, the takeaway is that it's probably wasn't terrible. (laughs) Yeah, I think of it the same thing. It's like Lauren 
Berlant's uh, cruel optimism, the very thing that's meant to be making you feel good is a source of anxiety and pain. Maybe that's not so great, right? Exactly. That's what it reminds me of too. It's like, it's a thing that's supposed to like help you through it as making you stressed out. Yeah. That's such a good (laughs) analogy. Why would we keep doing that? And I feel bad. And I the last time I saw a lot of these folks was 10 years ago. I think I've evolved as a human and I'm much more comfortable in my own skin. But again, I'm also evolved. It's been 10 years. I feel more established. I feel more comfortable with where I'm living. Again, as a some like residue of like living in the neoliberal capitalist moment, like, oh, my house isn't good enough. So I don't want to invite these other people over. I mean, it's kind of, I probably way overthought all of this stuff to the point where I doubt if it even crossed anyone else's mind, but mine, even my husband was like, who cares, dude, man, get some burgers on the grill and give them some beers. No one really cares that much, Aaron, you're overthinking it. You spoke to our group with uh, Wayne state and that I think was a lot more meaningful. And I like that research you brought up because we had multiple sort of intersections where it wasn't just that we had the children, but we could say, you know, Hey, um, you're also teaching composition 1020 right now. You know, right. what do you think of that discourse community assignment that we're doing? How's that going for you? You know, how are you doing with balancing your schedule? What about the parking? You know, you could talk about other things that were relatable, common touchstones, if you will. And so, right, we still talk to a lot of those people that I knew from that time in my life. And I think it's exactly what you said. They know more about me and can understand my current situation I might be older than some of them. I might be younger than some of them. You know, we have different sort of family units and all that, but there's that common point of they get what I'm going through on a daily basis. They understand. They might have had to miss out on the field trip last week because they also had the Tuesday afternoon class. So those friendships, I think, have lasted much longer, even though a lot of us have sort of spread across the country and things like that. We still all kind of communicate at least via social media, because we still have that sense of solidarity and they still kind of get what I'm going through. And now our kids are older and they're kind of experiencing different things, but it's much more meaningful to me for sure. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's a a key takeaway for me here too. And I realize that not everybody has that, you know, especially some of the, uh, some of our listeners that have been in touch with us from the STEM fields that are saying, you know, there really weren't any other grad students or even any other scholars with children. That I think that that must be really difficult to figure that out. We were really lucky to have that um, support system at the time. And another thing that I've been thinking about, not to bring up the P word again, Aaron, but the, you know, <laughs> I have a couple of colleagues that are first time moms right now. And just to not have access to meeting with other people in person strikes me as really, really difficult. So even if those playgroups for me weren't long lasting friendships, I think it was still really important for me as a new mom to have that context where I could just ask a question or even just if I didn't feel comfortable asking questions, overhearing other people's conversations to get a sense of like what I should be thinking about or what, you know, get ideas of like, oh, I hadn't noticed this that or I didn't know this about the development of my child or whatever. So just for, you know, for anyone out there that's listening, that's maybe a first time parent, I don't have any tips, but it's if it feels difficult, that's probably because it is. And so, you know, social media and and communities like the one that we're trying to sort of create here, I think are important places to go and can be helpful in sort of making it through some of these difficult times. I was just thinking about um, nursing as a new mom, too. And even though I had read all the books, that was one of the things I think we talked about before. It's like you don't really know until you're doing it. I actually had uh, attended La Leche League. That was something my mom did in the 70s. And I just remember Uh. hearing about that. My mom is much better at like making friends. And she's like an extrovert off the charts. So she had like made a ton of friends in it. But even that, like you said, I might not have directly contacted anyone, but like everyone just kind of shared their stories or what they were going through. And even kind of being sort of a passive recipient to all that information was super helpful to me. And so I'm wondering if in this current situation, if there's any way to sort of recreate any of those groups, I'd be curious. I have no idea. I'd love to hear from listeners, like what is the support system if you are a new parent? Do the hospitals set up like an online group? Is it the same? I mean, I would assume just being able to talk would be nice. But as I mentioned, I don't know if everyone's so candid and sharing or if the conversation is as organic as it would be online as it is in person, right? So we're kind of thinking about how our social lives or maybe the way we interact with our children socially and these groups 
is impacted by our work in academia. What about the fact that we are actually academics with children? How does that work? Because I think we've already said this, like, oh, you are academics, you are teachers, you are professors, you must be awesome at teaching your own children. I mean, that's definitely something that's come up in this pandemic world. But do you have anything else to sort of think about, like, as academics, and we can sort of speak to this, I know my answer to this, but do we end up placing higher expectations on our children than other people? I think that's a really excellent question. Um, I think it's really, that's really interesting to me just to look at the kind of work that my daughter brings home and there, you know, that she's been in first grade, you know, you were talking about like tables of contents and glossaries and, and whatnot. She learned all of those elements in first grade and like they taught her how to write a topic sentence and how to build a paragraph and all these things. And it's really, I'm partially like really impressed. And then at the same time, I'm like, okay, how can I push her even further kind of thing? Right. So like what, you know, what are some things? So then I get into like the nitty and gritty of like, okay, but this point doesn't really, you know, carry to that one. And how can, you know, and, and then I try to explain to her, like, theoretically what you know how this is a, an apple and this is a banana and you know like how can she make it flow better or whatever so I try to like not do too much of that because for the most part it's really impressive what they're teaching her in thinking about this I came across a study that actually came out of Germany where they um compared they had a number of participants and I don't remember exactly what the number was and they were all first years at German universities and they took their hair and then measured the cortisol levels in the hair for the first like month and a half of being at the university. And so what they found, and then they had, you know, they did interviews and they um, checked for the other factors and whatnot. Um, and they found that children of academics depicted in their hair, a higher stress level than other kids in their first semester at college, which I thought was really interesting. And so I, you know, I'm wondering if the pressure to then also succeed in the same way is really something that we put on our kids. Like I said, when I, you know, when I see the test coming home from school, it's really easy for the, or the, the math scores or whatever. I have to keep myself from saying, you know, you got a 95, like what, what happened to the other 5%? Like, you know, I have to really make sure that I focus on the 95 and say, this is really great. You did a great job. You worked hard, you know, using that growth mindset language that we talked about last week and not being like, well, you know, could you, what could you have done to get the score even higher? I don't know what, how do you feel about that? It's definitely complicated in my family. I do feel like from birth, I expected my kids to be really smart. <laughs> and so much so when we were at Wayne, there was a study one time that came up for childhood giftedness. I don't know if I told you this mm -hmm. or not. Maybe I did. And it was through the psychology department. And they're like, you know, hey, you get a free IQ test for your kid if you put them in the study. Oh, that's not bad. And then we're, you know, we'll work with some different, there is probably psych grad students probably kind of going over the data. My son was the only one that qualified based on age constraints for the study. And it was interesting to see the results uh, because he was like really disproportionate in some areas. But the one thing that he was placed at the genius level of the IQ test was verbal, like verbal acumen and reading and things of that nature. And so I think they gave him, there was a part of it that was like reading and they said, you know, he maxed out the, he maxed out at 18. So he oh, definitely wow. reads at the level of an 18 year old, but it's probably even more than that. It's just that this is a child's test. <sighs> and so, you know, it, that's where it ends is 18. And so I was kind of like, yeah, that makes sense to me. You know, um, literature has been a really key part of my life. Um, and so I think he has got this really great acumen for reading and for being able to interpret. That set my expectations really high. And I feel yeah. like, it's hard sometimes because my kids, especially he tries really hard now that he's in high school. He goes to a private school because we did have him in a public school and he absolutely abhorred it for many reasons. I didn't really like what I was seeing there either. So he tries pretty well. But my middle kids are kind of just like do very, very minimal to get like the B level, the 85%. And so I don't know. It's really hard for me to not push them to do more. But then there's another part of me like, look, it's only seventh grade or sixth grade or do I really need to be that picky about it? But there is a part of me where I'm like, I feel like you should be really awesome at this. You know, I feel like you should right. do even more and do better. And 
to the extent my daughter in eighth grade shared an essay she wrote with me. It was supposed to be a narrative. And I just said, you know, I feel like you're calling attention to the wrong details. These are this is like the really boring part of the story. You need to bring focus to what's interesting or exciting or unique about your narrative. But she doesn't really it was funny because she was writing it in a Google document. And I just saw that she like deleted, deleted all my comments. But anyway, I digress. It's just that, you know, it's like I feel like a sort of mixture, which is on the one hand, I do know they all have awesome capabilities. Do I think it would make sense as someone who teaches English and composition that they do really well in those classes? They do. The weird part of it is, though, I wonder if my aversion to mathematics has also worn off on them because they all do well in the things that I like, which they love science. I love science. They like mm-hmm. history and social studies. I liked history and social studies. They do quite well in second language um, because I liked grammar and I found Spanish pretty easy because I was good at English grammar. So I don't know. I think some of it's my attitude. Do we put more pressure on them? I think that's a possibility. Yeah, I think I think it's a possibility. Yeah, it's I have to I do have those high expectations. I feel the same way where I have high expectations. I expect them to do well. So far, my older daughter has mostly met them. And so then when something I tried not to make too big of an issue about if it's not going that well in in a particular area, just because I don't want it to be something that is contested. But at the same time, I do want to sort of like I want them to understand the importance of doing well so that they can get a good education so that they can, you know, that all doors are open to them without without sort of pressuring them. And I think that's a fine line that I haven't quite figured out how to walk, if that makes sense. That's really important too. I try to frame it in that way, not so much about the grades, but like, it sounds weird to be thinking about life goals when someone's 13. My 13-year-old daughter said, I want to be maybe a marine biologist. I'm like, that's really cool. I can totally dig that. That's something that I was interested back in the day. That being said, you do need to have good science and math scores to move into that field. So I've tried to frame it in that way, thinking about what they want to do. My son, he is kind of vacillating between two really different fields, history and physical sciences like physics. And I'm like, well, again, if you want to go into physics, you really that there's a lot of math involved in that. And so you're telling me you think math is kind of boring, but I don't see a way of going into that field without trying to really strengthen your skills there. You're going to be really going to need to buckle down. And so I think that conversation can be helpful for the older kids. Do I think my seven-year-old needs to know her career trajectory right now? Probably not so much. I'm just kind of like happy with how she's reading and her use of vocabulary and we'll keep it at that. I've asked the other ones like what they want to do. They're not really sure yet, you know, and I think that's okay. Like I didn't really know what I was going to end up doing when I was 18. So there you go. There's maybe there's maybe some value in developing those those um, study skills. I just know that like for me, elementary, everything in elementary school came pretty easy. And so I never really developed strong study skills. And so then by the time I hit high school and things started getting harder, it was more like, okay, I already know how to do this. So I'm going to do well in this. This is kind of hard, but I don't really know how to study for it. So I'm just going to take whatever grade I get. So I think, you know, if there's sort of like the 85% where it's like, okay, you clearly have a very solid grasp on this. Um, What little thing can you do to take it up a notch? Um, Just to like focus on the process and the skills that might be that might be helpful. But again, I mean, you know, if they're combative and they feel like you're telling them what to do and it just becomes a, an issue where they're trying to prove that they have power and control, then, you know, who are you doing a favor? Right. So that's a yeah, that's a difficult that's a difficult entanglement for sure. But I mean, we've already sort of talked about their response to the academic journey, but does it inspire them? I think the one thing that is kind of a given in the household is that everyone's going to college at least. And to that end, you know, we've already started planning for that. I do think that my academic journey has inspired my children in other ways, which have to do with resilience, as we discussed last week, that it was good for them to watch me struggle through this. It was good for them that they have observed that sometimes I've had to miss out on some fun things, right? There have been times maybe I really did want to go to see that Marvel movie. I did, you know, I did, but I wanted to use that three hours to work on my chapter so I could get that done. So I think there have been lessons learned by all the kids. I think they've observed me getting up and being an active member of my job for a long time. I think that's really important. 
But with the PhD in particular, I told you that my son even wrote a little essay about it because he thought that was, he said that, you know what, my mom could have given up so many times and it almost seemed like she was going to a few times, but she did not. So I think that part of it has been really important. Now, again, mine are a little bit older. So I've been in graduate school since my son was about three, starting with my master's program. And then they were older when I started the PhD program. So they have really seen me go from phase to phase. And I think that was meaningful to them. Do your kids have any thoughts about it? Do you think it inspires them at all? I don't know how much they have been exposed to it and how much it has. It resonates with them individually. I think, and part of it, I think, is because they were younger. um, And part of it is maybe because I've secluded it a little bit more and kept it to myself a little bit more um, as sort of like my own thing that. I want to have to myself in some ways too. My daughter is very ambitious in terms of all the things that she wants to be. She wants to be a scientist and she wants to be a teacher and she wants to be a mom and she knows all of those things. And that's something that she talks about. I don't know how much she is. We haven't really had the conversation of how much dedication that's going to take. I'm like mostly, uh, I mostly, I think my initial response is to make sure that she knows that um, she can pick whatever she wants and that she doesn't have to, that she can decide later if she wants to be a mom. Like, I think that like, I, you know, that's something that I'm really concerned about that. That's just like such an auto automatic thing that that becomes this like dominant um, idea of like, I have to have kids uh, that I think sometimes it's important to me to know that to, for her to know that it's also an option not to do that. And so that's, so that's something that I try to, me- try to emphasize and try to mention. I haven't really thrown a lot of effort into explaining what kind of dedication it's going to take to become a scientist. <laughs> so. You know, what's really funny. My three older kids, none of them want children. Um, oh, really? Then, yeah, they're like, no, it's just not for me. Thank you. And I'm like, okay. Uh, and then the last one, though, she's like, I want five kids. Um, she told me she wants two sets of twins or something like that. And then one extra. Oh, my goodness. So it's That's funny. I Exactly. I'm like, okay. And I'm like, so I think it's interesting that just goes to show how, you know, it might change or grow. But I'm like, okay, you know, and yeah. I also told them it's okay not to have kids. And it's okay if you know that about yourself. I think that's really smart, too. Don't feel forced or pressured into doing any one of those things. So I think there's a lot that remains that we can continue to talk about maybe in future episodes, thinking about later how our particular field plays a role in our parenting ideologies. I think that would be really great. This has been an awesome conversation, Unit. I'm excited to keep always thinking about our parenting practices. In the meantime, if our listeners want to explore any of these ideas or tell us a little bit more about their experiences right now as new parents, or if they're finding communities of support, where can they reach us? So we are available on Instagram. Uh, We have an Instagram account at PhD in Parenting. You can find us there. Uh, Leave your comments and questions or whatever you have under the posts for each episode. And we'd be happy to uh, continue the conversation there. And then, of course, we're always welcoming emails. You can email us at PhD in Parenting podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear feedback, questions, comments, suggestions for other topics. I don't see us running out of ideas anytime soon, Erin. If anyone out there has any ideas or has anything that they want us to talk about, uh, send us an email. We welcome those ideas. And I think Apple Podcasts is the only app that allows reviews. So feel free to do that there. Those are some of the ways that you can get in touch with us. Thank you, everyone, for listening. 